Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you get to know people in times of peace, when times of conflict arise, you've got relationships that are established and you begin to understand the nuances of the situation much better. It's important that we build that level of trust through the community so that parents are actually saying to their children, you should aspire to work for these agencies. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Olivia Shen, Director at the ANU's National Security College. Today's podcast is recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. Today we continue our mini-series on cultural and linguistic diversity in the national security community. On this episode, we're looking at diversity and cold representation through the eyes of Islamic Australians. I'm joined today by Sheikh Ahmed Abdo, Islamic scholar and community leader based in Sydney. As well as being a teacher and a mentor, Ahmed advises a range of government agencies on Islam and interfaith dialogue. Welcome, Ahmed. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. We're also joined today by Mr. Tony Sheehan. Tony recently retired after a long career in the national security community. He was formerly Deputy Secretary for International Security in DFAT, Deputy Director General in ASIO, and the Commonwealth Counterterrorism Chief in Department of Home Affairs and the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, Olivia. And hello, Ahmed. Ahmed, if I could start with you, um, from your role as an Islamic chaplain and community leader, What do you think are some of the lessons we can learn from Islamic values and Islamic communities in support of a more secure and cohesive society? I think, first of all, um, understanding the universal aspect of uh, faith and spirituality in people's lives. Um, This is a very diverse global population and uh, people come from different worldviews and backgrounds and perspectives. And uh, for a Muslim, well, a Muslim is someone who adheres to the faith of Islam, um, they generally don't see themselves as being uh, separate to the rest of the worldwide community, particularly those that stem from monotheistic traditions. And the reason being is that uh, Muslims consider all prophets that have been sent by God previously, including Moses, Abraham, Noah, and even Jesus, for instance, um, as being highly revered and honoured. And so there's this concept of universal values, Mm. which Muslims are very, very uh, connected to. Uh, uh, The Islamic uh, worldview, uh, or what we call the sharia, the the, the law, is one that um, attends to the personal uh, needs, the physical bodily needs, as well as the spiritual needs uh, of the soul. And it's not only about preserving faith or religion, but in fact, there are five uh, universal protections within Islamic law. Amongst those is the intellect. Um, uh, a Muslim is required to preserve, protect and develop the human mind. Uh, part of that is honor. Uh, part of that is property. Muslims are actually required by sacred law to ensure that people's property and land is secure and protected. And it actually doesn't matter what faith the other person is, because the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said in a beautiful hadith, which uh, we call uh, the sayings or the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad, which actually forms the second primary source of Islamic law, the first being the Qur'an. What we see is the verbatim revelation of God sent to the Prophet Muhammad via the archangel Gabriel. He actually says, a person who believes in God in the last day, let him or her be generous and kind 
to his neighbor. He didn't actually specify his Muslim neighbor or his believing neighbor, any neighbor whatsoever. Um, and in fact, when the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, first entered the city of Medina after 13 years of persecution in the city of Mecca uh, towards the end of his life, which is known as the famous migration, he actually entered into a treaty with the minority populations who were there, who were of different faiths and, and different religions. Um, and so this is something that's part and parcel of, uh, of a Muslim's life and a Muslim's worldview to see how it is that they can work towards the common benefit of society. So that universality, that concept of universality that's so core to Islam actually really lends itself naturally to those values of so, like social cohesion and unity. Clearly, um, there's a there's an overarching verse in the Quran where God says, um, "O humankind, we created you from a male and female, and made you into nations and tribes, in order that you may know one another." So there's a already an acceptance by a Muslim that the nature of creation in this world is varied and multiplied. Um, with that difference in background, in ethnicity, in tongue. So the best of people are those who are most God-conscious in dealing with that difference. And if God wanted Muslims believe, he could have created everyone the same, but he didn't. So there's a reason. That reason is that we get to know one another, and that's the reason that God gives us in the Quran. And the reason I use that is because for Muslims, the two primary source of, sources of inspiration, motivation, framing their worldview are the words of God in the Quran and the words of the Prophet Muhammad in what we call the Hadith or the Sunnah. Um, and so they're very, very clear messages that we need to, to get along with each other. We need to get to know one another and, and actually ask a question. How can you get to know other people? if you don't work side by side with them? Mm. How can you get to know other people if you do not have this mutual path of exchanging communication ideas, even things that you are going to disagree with? For instance, in the Quran, God mentions those who disagree with him even in terms of belief. Mm. So, I mean, that sounds really wonderful and it's a really strong basis for getting to know one another and understanding and accepting our diversity in one another as well. I love the way you put it where the best of being human is understanding and understanding one another and appreciating one, one another for that diversity, for that difference. Um, you've had a lot of experience advising governments and government agencies on better engaging with Muslim Australians. Um, what have you seen as some of those examples of good practice where it really opens the door for that mutual understanding to happen? And on the flip side, what do you think are still some areas for improvement where we have a bit of way to go? Uh, no doubt in in, in societies such as Australia, we have institutions and organizations that have been long established and they've got ways of doing things and organizational culture um, that is very, very uh, at times rigid. And when something different uh, enters into this uh, melting pot, uh, sometimes it's challenging, sometimes it uh, causes tension, sometimes it agitates the other. But I say agitation in a good sense, and that's where we need to uh, look to when I see someone as being different or asking for different needs, um, that is going to agitate me, but it's going to agitate me in a positive way because I can learn to embrace, I can learn to be uh, relevant and to be current, and change isn't a bad thing. And in, in fact, we need to embrace that change and see not only how we can technically and tick the box and say, yes, we've accommodated group A, B or C, but it's about we've embraced them as one, but not erasing their identity. And I always give the example before I go into details. I say, we've got the choice. Either we can choose to have a fruit smoothie in Australia or we can choose to have a fruit salad. If you've got a fruit smoothie, you throw in your strawberries, your mangoes, your watermelons, your apples, your oranges, put them in the blender. After 30 seconds, it comes out as a puree. You drink it. You can't really distinct, you know, make the distinction between the apples and the bananas and the watermelons and the strawberries. It's just one color, one texture. That's one option. We can head there. Or we can have something called a fruit salad. You chop up your watermelons and your strawberries and your mangoes and your apples 
and they stay in the one bowl, you can identify that's that color, that's that texture, that's that taste. Each is going to preserve its own identity. And I think that's where we are in Australia. We want to preserve people's identity, but we want to have that closeness that's not going to have an end result of mixing so much that we can no longer distinguish people's identity. Otherwise, it's no longer multicultural. It's monocultural. It's like wherever you go in the world, you've got the Big Mac and you've got the, you know, mm. uh, the, 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 the one burger, the one menu, uh, wherever you are. And what happens is it eradicates the local cultural um, uh, nuances that are so rich, that are so generous, um, that uh, is part and parcel of what we are as human beings. So that's my general introduction. But I go back to your question. Uh, what are the things that have worked? What are the things that haven't worked? Look, different people have got different needs, haven't they? And particularly those that come from a spiritual faith background, as Muslims generally, that's going to be one of their most significant identities as human beings. Um, so, for instance, Muslims pray five times a day. It's not like they just go on a Friday to, you know, to the mosque and pray and that's it and it's done. But that prayer five times a day for a Muslim, akin to a meditation, akin to taking time out, retreat five times a day. Um, and that's something that's very, very significant. And for different organizations, particularly ones in which there is a demand on people's time, um, it becomes a challenge uh, to ask not only for a time five times a day to pray, but also for a place, a space. So that's been something that has been quite significant in some of these organizations that I've been uh, involved with, and that is trying to deal with the high tempo of movement in that organization and the significance of having a place and a time for that faith-adhering Muslim to offer that prayer back to God where they can take five or ten minutes out of their day um, but they can refocus their soul and come back into their occupation and continue to fulfill that particular duty. For instance, the month of Ramadan, which is one of the main five pillars of Islam, uh, fasting 30 days of the year, one month during the daylight hours. Uh, this is a different mode of operation now for a Muslim, where particularly in occupations or in organizations where there's a strong focus on physical activity on a you know daily basis, on a regular basis at different parts of the day, um, this is going to be quite strenuous on an adhering Muslim. And so talking to management about how they can adjust some of the tasks that are upon uh, that uh, member uh, during the day uh, so as to have it, you know, either right before the fast or towards the end of the day's fast um, or accommodating and moving things around. So rather than having it in Ramadan, having it outside the month of Ramadan. So uh, being flexible in the way that they organize their timetable or their schedule and to realize as well that the Muslim at night is going to be going to offer their congregational prayers with the rest of other Muslims in the community for several hours at times and wanting to break their fast at home with their family. So trying to get back home by the time the sun sets so they'd actually be there with their family. These are actually really special and sacred times. And I think when we begin to open these lines of communication, it's not just about transactional events. Mm. I've got to do this, so accommodate me. No, no, mm. no. We want the story. Yep. Uh, we want, I mean, Simon Sinek's got a beautiful book about the why, yep. you know, behind everything. You start with why. So why is it that you pray? Why is it that you fast? Why is it that you dress in this particular manner? Um, I think those conversations, when they're had, we end up with a much better result. When it's been done bad, as you asked, it's when we just find people, just give me the day off or mm. just give me a space to pray or just accommodate me on this. Yep. And it's either going to be accepted or rejected but we don't have the opportunity of that mutual learning. Yeah. That's where it's going to be done badly, I feel. Olivia, listening listening to the very valuable things that Ahmed has shared with us, it makes me reflect on on some of what he said in, in terms of, of my experience. Um, until I became counterterrorism coordinator in 2016, most of my experience uh, working with... Uh, Islamic communities was in Indonesia. Uh, and it was evident to me 
um, very early on in my time there, the, the generosity of, uh, the community that, uh, that I was part of. And I think hearing what Ahmed said, having a greater understanding of why, um, it was as welcoming, um, as it was is, is more evident to me. In a, in a practical sense, when I became counterterrorism coordinator, I could see some of the, Practical manifestations too uh, in uh, Islamic community um, from Muslim Australians that Ahmed has described, and people like Ahmed uh, in the way that they would reach out to young people in a non-threatening way, take such care about uh, such issues as uh, education, providing. Um, non-threatening space for people to express themselves uh, and the way in which, for example, um, there was a very strong disassociation of religion from violent extremism were some of the practical examples I saw of um, the way in which we could uh, we could learn from Islamic values. Um, also, just just reflecting on the the question about um, best practice and areas for improvement in government, something that has always struck me as as important to start with is we are all Australians, and the best examples of uh, the way in which we engage are inclusive in language and inclusive in action recognizing areas of vulnerability in our community, but not securitizing. And I think government has come a long way, for example, in areas of countering violent extremism as, as one example, but understanding that good happens in the community uh, that doesn't involve a lot of government intervention, mm. letting that happen, and then trying to build on that strength and support those things at work. Um, I, for example, look at the work that uh, Basha Huli, the AFL footballer in Melbourne, has done. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's one example of an area where, you know, excellent work is, uh, is being done uh, with, with young people. Um, but it's not primarily about government and I think government has become better over time at the way that it supports what is working in the mm -hmm. community. Still obviously a, a long way to go but you know I think we've seen a lot of positive progress. Um, yes I think that's right Tony and I think we also need to get a lot better at, at acknowledging the agency and the achievements of the community in doing those good works because it's their communities too, right? It's they have the most at stake. It's their families. It's their next generation. It's their friends and their, their, their youth as well who are supported by these, these, um, efforts. And I think it's important that for a lot of cold communities in Australia, they don't want to be only engaged and only consulted by government in a crisis or when something has gone wrong. And I think it's very stereotyping of a community if they're only sort of a focus for government when it's a negative, when there's a negative story that's or there's a true. problem to fix. That, that's very true. And, and that was something that I needed to be very aware of because if that is the way that as a government official you engage, then naturally people will think, well, you're only interested in me because of a concern about whatever the threat or problem is that you mm. perceive, um, when actually what is important is you know, working together to build resilience in our community mm. and ultimately we are one community. And it goes to Ahmed's point too about that engagement feeling so transactional from government as opposed to building understanding and both sides, all sides coming together on the question of the why and the story that's important to understanding. Um, so if I could pull on the thread of Ahmed's analogy of a fruit salad or fruit smoothie, <laughs> <laughs> Ahmed, in your view, do you think Australian society is more fruit salad or more fruit smoothie? Look, I think it depends on the individual in a sense. Um, in, in areas where there has been more positive interaction. I think people are more open to this fruit salad 
concept because they don't feel intimidated. Mm. Um, they don't feel um, at risk of losing. It's always a sense of, you see, when there's fear in a relationship, um, then there's going to be that negative tension. And people try and um, put up their barriers uh, such that you don't have that open means of communication and mutual learning. So in communities where there has been that cross-pollination, and that's what I call it, it is a cross-pollination, where we begin to learn from each other. We hold on to our own values, yes, our own identity, yes, but we add on to that another layer as long as that other layer is not going to contravene any of our deeply held principles. And there's no problems in that. We can have multiple layers as Australians, I mean, when we talk about our identity, even just defining what is Australian culture, that itself is a very, very deep discussion. And how does that then relate to our 60 or 70,000 year old tradition mm. of continuous living tradition and culture of our First Nations people? Um, and I, I remember an experiment or a little task that was done with, with youth once where they had a very long rope. And on that rope, uh, they've got a, they consider it as a timeline. So one end of the rope is the beginning of indigenous, uh, population in, in Australia. And at the other end of the rope, they began to, uh, uh mention some of the significant events that, uh, that occurred. The arrival of the first fleet, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, Australia coming together under one federation, uh, World War One, World War Two, uh, various wars that Australia participated in, uh, before, after, uh, different significant events that occurred when Indigenous people first received their right to vote in Australia and were recognized as being distinct from the flora and the fauna of this nation. And you found that all those events were happening right at the tip. Mm. The other tip of the rope, whereas that entire extent of the rope was Indigenous peoples in this particular nation. So I think that's a very important uh, when we're talking about minority communities, that in a sense, we are all minority communities in this country. We are all foreigners in this country because we are all new arrivals. And I know there's this notion of newly arrived immigrants into this country and how we're dealing th with them. In essence, we're all newly arrived immigrants into this country in comparison to that 70,000-year-old tradition. And I think that's so relevant in this particular age in that discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Newly arrived is very relative, isn't it? It is. In, it the is. Youth, uh, in our very, very young nation. We'll be right back. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. So it, I would probably, I'd certainly agree that sort of in the conversations that we've been having uh, as part of this mini series, that the idea of personal identity and what it means to be Australian is incredibly personal and incredibly textured and incredibly subjective as well. Um, I think there are sometimes in certain situations or contexts where you feel like your fruit salad. And then there are other contexts where you feel like there's this pressure to be more of a blended smoothie or to maybe dial down your status or your identity as a, as a minority person or a cold person. I certainly have a bit of a worry. And Tony, I'd like to get your thoughts on this that the national security community is a bit more smoothie than fruit salad. Um, 
I didn't know why I liked fruit salad more than smoothies, but maybe <laughs> maybe what I've, I've heard from Ahmed this morning helps me helps me understand that a little bit better. Um, sitting around government tables over the years, it was unavoidable to see that the Australia that we live in was not fully reflected in the Australia sitting around the table and I think that might be part of what you are getting at and yeah diversity in government is really important if we want to make sure that we are getting voices that represent you know the broadest scope of Australians possible um, in our policy making in the way that we operate um, one of the things I think that is important to be aware of, and I found this at different times working in different government departments and agencies in relation to recruitment, is that the attitude that most Australians might have towards police, military, intelligence agencies, which is predominantly one of trust in organisations that are there to protect us, yeah, will not necessarily be universally shared. And, and I can understand that because in some cases, we're talking about Australians who are first or second generation Australians where the experience with police or military or intelligence um, at some past point in people's lives or through experience understood from families is very different. And it's important that we build that level of trust through the community so that parents are actually saying to their children, you should aspire to work mm -hmm. for these agencies um, rather than say, oh, we'd rather you're a doctor or uh, start a business or whatever it may be. Um, and that way we will benefit from much greater diversity and inclusion in government. And that's, it's not a, a values argument. It's also about getting the best possible outcome for our country. And I, I can't help remembering, uh, Olivia, I think that perhaps there might have been an aspiration for you to be a dentist, but you found <laughs> your way into the national security community. So well done. Thank you. Thank you. Can you please write to my mother and tell her that it wasn't a misstep? <laughs> Um, and so that, that, uh, a question for you then, Ahmed. I, I know you've done a lot of work with youth groups and young Muslim Australians. Um, touching on Tony's point about, you know, how it, the, the perception of security agencies can be very much shaped by the experiences of a family as first and second generation migrants. Um, what do you think are sort of, if you can generalize, what are some of the younger Muslim Australians' views of government and what might actually encourage more Muslim Australians to consider a career in, in government, in the public service, or indeed in the national security community? Yeah, I, I think what Tony said earlier was, is extremely relevant. And that is the, uh, pr previous, uh, securitization of conversation and engagement uh, with community. And uh, to tell you the truth, the Muslim community is in fact scarred uh, by through previous engagements at times where um, they were seen um, as only being wanted to, to have that engagement by government because there was a security issue. Um, and, and I think we need to recognise and acknowledge uh, that um, as of late, uh, language and terminology has matured and it's moved on from that. Uh, so it's more of a co-partnership, a collegial uh, relationship. And it's also understood that the, the factors that will uh, influence a person, for instance, to violent extremism are many and varied. Um, and if we're looking at religious uh, motivations. Well, the religion actually talks about peace. The religion talks about bringing security to people's land, property, honor, mind, safety, and so on. So having the opportunity to have those conversations is, I think, is very, very important. Um, but we need to look to the past, recognize what we've done not so well in terms of that engagement, and come with the intent to seek to come together in good times as well. And I, I know 
And when I speak with uh, people in, for instance, police, they talk about this concept called community policing, Mm -hmm. which is actually part and parcel of their strategy where they actually walk the streets. They enter the cafes and shopping centres not because there's problems or they go to places of worship, whether it be churches, mosques or synagogues or wherever, not because there is a problem, but because they just want to get to know people in times of peace. And when you get to know people in times of peace, when times of conflict arise, you've got a st- relationships that are established and you, you can begin to understand the nuances of the situation much better and have a much more positive outcome. So I think at this particular point in time is right. This is a perfect time where government and its connected agencies within the policing, security, intelligence community can have deep and open conversations with communities, Celt communities, Muslim communities, Arabic communities, Urdu communities, Bengali communities. And again, by the way, Muslim community is not one community. Mm -hmm. It is varied in its tongue, in its dress, in its custom, in its culture, in its food, and even in its approach to life. Some are more conservative, some are more uh, liberal. Uh, So there's a whole plethora of different approaches, albeit, you know, within one overarching framework. So recognizing the differences even within the Muslim community is very, very important. Um, So if we open up that opportunity for conversation between these two uh, parties, between these two groups, um, and it's one where it's a long-term relationship that's seeking to be established. Now, I think that's pretty difficult at times, particularly when you've got government in for a defined period of time. But When we've got uh, government agencies and administration um, and leadership within that sector that is able to have that long-term relationship being established, visitations, I think, are very, very important, that these agencies and their representatives actually come out to the community, not you call them in to Canberra or you call them in to Kent Street or wherever you're based, but rather you go out as an agency and your people and you visit the mosque. You visit the local Muslim school, you visit the local sporting center, you actually see and witness what's going on and you can appreciate the amazing things that are happening. You know, I know there are some centers in Southwest Sydney on a daily basis, they've got more than 2,000 people coming in. Oh, sorry, on a weekly basis, they've got more more than 2,000 people coming in and benefiting from the services that are occurring there, whether it be religious, whether it be sporting, whether it be recreational, whether it be educational. And that's, that's, a huge, that's a huge amount of people that are actually coming through and just doing their normal day-to-day things. So when we've got agencies coming and witnessing these things, or for instance, what happens inside of a mosque? Some people think, oh, wow, we can't go inside of a mosque. That's why we've got mosque open days. And mosque open days have been happening now for several years. Some of the main mosques in in, and around Australia will designate a particular day where it's just open for anyone in the neighborhood, in the community to come and to have a meal and to enter inside the mosque and take a mosque tour, speak with fellow Muslim Australians there and understand about their beliefs and get the opportunity to ask those questions that they wouldn't necessarily ask, those tough questions, those questions that are on their mind, those questions that are causing them sleeplessness at night, that not allowing them to uh, have a good positive relationship with someone who they see as being different. Um, so having those opportunities where we can have engagement in each other's backyard, I think is so important, is so positive, um, and is going to eventually lead to a a, a much stronger long-term relationship. And this comes back to immersion, doesn't it? If you want to learn a language, then you're not going to sit there in a classroom setting in Australia uh, for three years and just learn the language that way. Throw yourself for six months in an Arabic-speaking country or Urdu-speaking country or you know Mandarin-speaking country, and you'll learn in six months what you wouldn't have learned in three years in a classroom. This is just the natural way that we human beings learn when we immerse ourselves in that new culture. But it takes courage if we don't have the courage. And not only does it take courage, but it takes a bit of humility because we have to give up something of what we have because we're entering another person's space. And I think that's so profound as well. It's It's in fact an honor, isn't it? Because the other person, the other community has opened the door for you to enter into their space, into their sacred space, into their heart, 
And if we could each enter into each other's hearts, all of our hearts would expand. And I think that's just so profound, so deep and so meaningful. I think um, Ahmed is uh, is more lyrical than I am, and I I certainly can't compete with that. But what what you said, Ahmed, uh, in relation, example, to mosque open days is absolutely true. And I found that attending something like that um, was a learning accelerator for me. Um, it's not too hard to be humble in that situation because, you know, in my case, certainly I probably didn't even know what I didn't know. But what I did discover by attending a mosque open day was not simply that I could learn. It was a great environment to make new friends and new contacts in, which then led to a much greater ability um, to communicate you know, with, with people in the community that I just had no exposure to before. Um, and I, I take your point as well that simply being out there and people seeing you and knowing you're not just here for a single transaction to tick a box or because you're worried about a particular threat. We're seeing quite a bit of you. You know, you might not know that much, but we're seeing quite a bit of you helps enormously. And, and I think all government officials can learn from that. But really, I think you're talking about all Australians. Definitely. I mean, I, I, I share a quick story with you. Once I was out in the park uh, playground with some swings. Uh, I had my kids uh, was sw- swing one of my daughters on the swing. And uh, there was another girl, um, you know, another Australian. Uh, most likely not Muslim, I can tell you, and most likely not Arab uh, or origin. Um, but I was wearing uh, what we have as a traditional dress, which is actually like a long gown. It's basically a long shirt, but very common um, amongst Muslim populations and, and, and Arab countries. So uh, as I was pushing my daughter along uh, on the swing, uh, this girl, she was probably, you know, maybe six or seven years old, and uh, her parent was not far away as well. So the girl actually looks up to me. She scans, she scans my dress <laughs> um, and she says, excuse me, why are you wearing a dress? <laughs> so, so I thought about it for literally half a second and my knee-jerk response was, I wasn't going to get into any theological debates or discussions, but I just said, oh, actually, it's a long shirt she said oh is it thanks and that's it yeah she was happy you know Mm. so it's just the way we see things to one person it's a dress meaning the the garment of a female to another person it's a shirt but just a bit longer than the waist (laughs) you know and a brilliant response on your part because you can never win an argument with a young child so (laughs) i think that's brilliant i I had a similar experience i remember uh in China in the 1980s where uh, a very young boy came up to me and asked me, what kind of man are you? Oh. And I said, I'm from Australia. Do you know where that is? And he thought about that and then looked at me and said, can I touch your nose? (laughs) Which I allowed him to do and we were friends thereon. I think children have an amazing ability to be that open. To, to say things that maybe as adults it's deemed culturally or insensitive or socially inappropriate to ask those questions. But the frankness of a child and, and maybe sort of that openness is something we forget to tap into as adults and maybe we actually need to tap into it more in order to embrace the difference of others or to even just ask uncomfortable questions that actually have a great story behind them. It's that innocence um, in the child that will lead them to um, being inquisitive. Uh, we adults, unfortunately, need to unlearn a lot of things um, so we can be brave enough because it comes from a good intention. We don't want to upset. We don't want to insult. We don't want to hurt. But in these, all these don'ts, we just end up not learning. We end mm-hmm. up not establishing a relationship. So we need to ask ourselves, is it worth it? Mm, that's true. Mm. And the the other danger is that because we're unwilling or not brave enough to ask, we default to stereotypes or assumptions or perhaps misconceptions. So I want to pivot a little um, at, and I wanted to ask Ahmed your views on um, some recent 
progress or policy announcements and intentions by the government regarding cold inclusion, particularly in the APS. So Green Senator Maureen Faruqi, who's the first Muslim woman to enter a parliament, has called for a formal strategy for cold representation in the APS, particularly for people of non-European backgrounds. Um, what's your thoughts on this? Do you think it's a good idea? Do you think it will work? Um, w- within any organisation, if we're in Australia, um, I think it's important to be to have that organisation um, representative of the wider Australian population and culture. And then I think there was one uh, very well-known federal uh, organisation that uh, its leader uh, said a number of years ago in, in, in a meeting that I was there. He says, when I entered this organisation uh, many, many years ago, um, uh, it is now a very different organisation to what it was back then. Mm. And he was very keen to ensure that its membership today is reflective of true multicultural society Australia is now. And he said, we're not there yet, but we need to get there. So I think this uh, proposal for increasing cold representation within the public service, um, it should occur without any strategies. It should organically be there. But if it's not organically there, this leads us to the question, why is it not there? And I think one of the reasons is that people, well, it's two reasons, really. One is that cult communities may not find that space as being an inviting one, as being an accommodating one, as being a second home to them where the heart has been opened up for them. Um, and two, the space itself, its structure, is one which places barriers for people to enter when they see it. So, and individuals within that structure may be used to doing things in a certain way or communicating in a certain method. Um, and so when we have more of the other, if they continue to be seen as the other, it means we're giving up a bit of who we are to accommodate the other. And that's just not going to be a positive result. So I think there needs to be work done on both sides in order to increase that representation within cult communities. And it's not just about increasing percentages, because if you have an increased representation of cult communities within the public service or any other organization, for instance, how are you going to ensure that as you begin to increase that percentage representation inside the service, that you're able to retain them? It's not a, just about increasing the numbers, but ensuring that when they do enter, they're retained and they're there for the long term. Because the worst thing that we can have is we have a big spike in representation of cold communities within public service. And then in five or 10 years time, that number then starts to go down. And what's going to happen is the long term effects are going to be far more negative because those who have had a negative experience upon entering, they will be negative ambassadors when they leave. So you would actually be better doing nothing than doing something <laughs> not in a, in a holistic mm. manner. Yeah, absolutely. See, experience in government is that yeah, the intent, the intent is there, uh, but we are naturally conservative. Uh, we will naturally find that we surround ourselves with people that we're familiar with or who think like us and being more conscious about how we go about trying to promote, you know, called membership of government departments and, and agencies, I think, can only be a good thing. But I agree with Ahmed. It's something we have to mean and be really focused on doing because if you try and do something and it has no impact or it only has fleeting impact, then then people will, will lose confidence in it. But certainly from my experience within government, the intent is there and we've seen that, you know, with various uh, elements of work uh, to try and improve diversity and inclusion in government, and we've seen quite significant progress. But you know, I'm, I'm I'm a fan of the idea. I think it's a good idea. Can I give you an ex- example, another story, anecdotal story, uh, Tony? Um, and that is, uh, for the last, oh, probably now nine months, in one agency, I won't mention whether it's state or federal or or where it is or what it is, in one agency, 
um, there have been a you know a, a group of uh, uh, Muslim uh, employees staff mm-hmm. who have asked for a space where they could come together for prayer during Ramadan. They did that, um, and it was made available for them. But beyond that, they wanted to be able to continue that. That was something that was very, very important for them. Um, and so for the last, you know, uh, eight, eight or nine months or so, um, there's been meetings with property managers and so on within that structure, within that building. But to date, there has been no prayer room that has been allocated, even though they've identified this is really important to me. I'm in an agency which I actually have to commit a great deal of time physically and mental focus as well um, because it's an extremely demanding uh, environment. Um, but this is another example where we're saying, yes, we need to increase, increase cold representation, but something that's really important to you people, we're finding difficulty in being able to arrange it for whatever reason it is. Um, things like that are going to end up leaving a sour taste with people and they'll just say, look, you know, they really don't care. Um, They're just saying this sort of stuff. But when we come up with things that are really, really important to us, um, it's nine months and still nothing's been done. Can I share another anecdote on that front as well? And it goes to your point about the difference between um, having diversity for recruitment and then actually being inclusive and focusing on retention. Because I've seen a few efforts where, you know, uh, one government agency did establish a prayer room and heralded it as a big change and part of their diversity agenda. And then a few months down the track, um, we're advising new parents in the department that they should use that 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 prayer room was also multi-purpose now. It was also it was also going to be a place where mothers could breastfeed their children. And it was this question around, well, you've created this space, then you're trying to tick a couple of different boxes for different groups, but in doing so, you haven't considered the cultural appropriateness or the the intention of that space. It's just, well, it's a prayer room, but it's also a breastfeeding room. And sort of like that that was okay. Like there, there was no further thought about, well, actually, these accommodations are for very different groups with very different needs. And they shouldn't just be collectively put together in the same basket and have the same space to deal with. And with the best of intentions, sometimes Absolutely. things don't go right. Yeah. Um, and one thing I'd say is I think that to whatever, whatever it is that we are trying to achieve, uh, you know, within government departments and agencies for that matter, any big organization, we take our signals from the top. And if the leadership really mean it, and if staff understand that the leadership really means something or really behind something, then things tend to happen. If it's seen as something which is just fleeting or perhaps not everybody is in agreement on, then often you'll run into more bureaucracy trying to get things to happen as well. Absolutely. Yeah, And I think if we have those conversations, for instance, about that multi-purpose space now, which is also a breastfeeding room or a, a prayer room, we have the conversation with the constituent elements. What do you see as being the appropriate space? And if we truly are limited by physical space within the building, well, let's have that conversation. How we can make, how can we make this room true to your needs? Mm. Is it going to be, um, uh, for instance, bringing in a curtain that is going to ensure privacy for different people that are going to be using the space at different times? Um, is it going to be um, uh, having different pieces of furniture or symbolism that can be produced or brought out um, during different people's use of the space? But I think the, the lesson is to have the conversation with the people as opposed to just saying this is what it is that we are going to do in order that we fulfill your needs because different people's needs um, are going to be varied and we need to listen to what they are. And, and I've done a lot of work in terms of advising on what is an appropriate prayer space, for instance, in a multi-faith setting mm. um, when we're limited uh, by uh, resources, by space, what is it that we can do of modifications 
that is still going to be true to the cause, but working within those constraints. Uh, so a lot of the time we want a lot of things, but it's just not possible. I mean, I personally, in my own life, want a whole heap of things, but I just can't get all those things. So I've got to negotiate with myself. And I think that's the thing. This is a, it's a two-way learning process. We have to be ready to negotiate. We can't get everything that we want, but at least if I have the conversation, if I've got a hundred things and I get one, well, that's great. It's better than getting zero. Um, and it's a long-term relationship. It's a journey. And if we see ourselves on this journey together, to try and ensure that we create a society here in Australia where we've got greater representation, where we've got fair representation of cold communities, where we've got an opening and comforting environment where people are going to be welcomed, where we've got a cross-fertilization and sharing of resources, of cultures, of customs, that it's just a bit more about food. Oh, just because we've got different cultures, you bring in your Chinese food and you bring your Lebanese food and you bring your Egyptian food and so on. Now, culture is, is a bit more about, more, more than about food. It's about our worldviews. It's about our, the ways that we approach life. It's about the, the way that we think. It's about the way that we interact. And even the way that we interact, for instance, there will be some people who will make eye contact with you. And others won't make eye contact. And in fact, that's a sign of respect. So the moment I see someone not making eye contact with me, how do I judge them? Do I say, mm, they're not respecting me? Or for instance, shaking hand between a man and a woman. There are some cultures or some faiths, for instance, some within the Muslim faith generally, who will not extend their hand to come into physical contact with the skin of a member of another gender if they're outside their close and immediate family. Is that being done out of disrespect? Or is it something which is within their religious guidelines and code of conduct and ethics and framework? There are do's and there are don'ts. I think your, your comments about negotiation, Ahmed, are, are really important and welcome because some of the things that, that we've been talking about can be very positive in a workplace. But if, for example, uh, a prayer room comes at the expense of part of the gymnasium that was important to some colleagues or the parents' room or whatever it might be, then it's not going to have the impact that we want, which is actually a workplace that is cohesive and, and respectful of, of everybody in it. So I think that's a really important message you've given. I don't think I could have summed it up any better. Um, so thank you so much to the both of you for joining us for this conversation today. Um, I love um, your stories, your insights, but also the really practical things that you've seen in your careers and in your experiences that we really need to bring to this conversation about more inclusiveness and more diversity in the national security community. I, I think I absolutely agree with you that a lot of the good intentions are there, but we need to go beyond intentions and actually look at having being on this journey together of negotiating diversity, of opening our hearts to different ways of understanding, of, of communicating, and ultimately to bring all this to bear so that we as a country and a society is more inclusive and richer for it. So thank you both for your time and joining me today. Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Olivia, and thank you, Ahmed. It's great to be here. And thank you to our listeners. If you have any comments you'd like to provide or feedback on this episode or our other episodes, please get in touch with us. Our email address is natsecpod, N-A-T-S-E-C-P-O-D at au. Bye for now. <laughs>